and gentlemen. Uh... Can I please have your attention? Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, today we're having uh, it's like fan favorite week on uh, on on the Remnant. Uh, we have today uh, a colleague of mine from the American Enterprise Institute, who every time he's on, people say you got to get him back on, and um, he's sort of a weird character for AI because AI is usually AI sort of scholars are kind of divided between. Uh, sort of generalists and popularizers, which I fall into that camp quite decidedly, and then uh, silo mechanics. And um, the silo mechanics know, go way deep on single issue areas. And not to say that they don't have opinions on other things, but that's just sort of the general divide. Uh, Ken Pollock, who's a senior fellow in the Foreign and Defense Policy Shop and an expert on Iran, who also worked at Several agencies that are usually described by three letters apiece um, is a uh, um, is a silo guy who's also a really good generalist and um, maybe not on the Iowa caucuses. Uh, I, I'm not I'm not presuming. I'm just saying I, you're not the guy I would normally go to for that. But on foreign policy, history, national security, uh, all that kind of stuff, um, he's sort of a one stop shop. So, uh, Ken Pollock, thanks for coming back to uh, The Remnant. Thanks for having me back, Jonah. So, where to begin? All right, so we usually have you back when Iran does bad things, and um, because that's one of your main specialties, and, and this is sort of new for us. Um, you have this piece in Foreign Policy um, about how Iran is doing good things, or at least things, is using carrots instead of sticks, as you put it. Um, and it may be doing good things for bad reasons, but it's a change of pace for the foreign policy shop to, to have to deal with. How are you going to respond to Iran's carrots? Um, so why don't you sort of lay out what's going on? Yeah, sure. I, I think you're exactly right about that, Jonah. It's just something that I've been noticing over the past six to 12 months. You know, we've seen this Iranian regime since the 1979 revolution. They've tended to be very, very consistent. Uh, they want very much to dominate the Middle East. They very, want very much to drive the United States out. They want very much to destroy the state of Israel. And for the most part, during those 44 odd years, they've relied heavily on sticks. Right? They uh, obviously employ tremendous amounts of terrorism. They will subvert foreign governments. Uh, they'll use overt force whenever it suits them to. Uh, they rely heavily on threats generated by those other forms of aggression. That's really been their MO for the past 43 years. And that's not to say that there aren't moments when you know they'll try a little soft power or, or being a little bit nice, but those have really been the exceptions. And you know what's really been striking to me over the last six to 12 months is how much they are really trying to be Mr. Nice Guy, right? In the Middle East, how they are trying very hard to make amends with so many of their neighbors, particularly their Arab neighbors, uh, how they're offering positive inducements, economic inducements, diplomatic inducements, even military inducements. Right? This is pretty striking. And it's kind of across the board with them all across the Middle East with two huge exceptions, Israel and the United States. Right? And there, if anything, they seem to be ratcheting up their levels of aggression. Uh, more support for terrorist attacks on Israel, more support for groups in both Iraq and Syria attacking Americans, uh, going after tankers and other maritime traffic in the Persian Gulf, in the Red Sea, right? They're, they're kind of simultaneously offering, for the first time, some significant carrots to the Arab states while they try to wield even bigger sticks more frequently with us. And this just struck me. As you know, kind of interesting. Um, as I as I put in this new piece I put in foreign policy, you know, it reminded me of the old Buffalo Springfield song. You know, There's something happening here, but what it is ain't exactly clear. And so I, I tried to in that piece kind of puzzle through what I think is going on. And the best I can come up with is that I think that they see a real opportunity right now to split 
the U.S. and Israel from the Arab states. And in particular, I think they feel they need to split Israel from the Arab states because there is this budding rapprochement that's been going on for several years. And so they're trying very hard to figure it out. And they're coming up with what I think is actually a much smarter approach on their part than we've seen from them in the past. So, I mean, is it, again, with the caveat that we don't know, right, Right. or the stipulation, whatever, um, it really is annoying that countries won't read their stage direction out loud for everybody, (laughs) although it put a lot of you guys out of work. But so could it be that Iran recognizes that if there is detente or eventual normalization with Israel, and and let's admit, normalization is still a long way away, but it's getting closer, right? And um, the baby steps that we've seen since the Abraham Accords and all that are starting to rack up to be, a you know, a lot of them were sort of unimaginable, just, you know, air rights and all that kind of stuff not too long ago. So could it, I mean, do you think the prime mover of this could be that for internal ideological reasons, normalization, the Arab states normalization with Israel is a threat to Iran's argument for why it exists. And so therefore it's trying to corral people back into an anti-Israel coalition? Yeah, I think... I think you're onto something here. I think it's part of probably several different motivations that the Iranians have, which is, yes, internally, the regime is under a fair amount of pressure. Uh, you know, we've seen just co- almost constant protests against the regime. They ebb and flow because the regime is highly repressive and, and people can only take beatings for so long, especially if, if nobody's going to help them out. So I think that there is that sense of a you know, crisis of legitimacy. We do have a, a new, very hardline regime in place in Iran, but it seems to be a pretty smart one, a pretty savvy one. Uh, you know, you made that point earlier, which I think is exactly right, which is that they're kind of being nice for bad reasons. And I think that's, we have to recognize that is this very hardline regime has nobody's best interests at heart except their own. Right. Not the Iranian peoples, not the people of the Middle East, only their own. But they are quite savvy. And I think that, you know, this this kind of an effort to try to build up Iran and in particular, if they can realize these aspirations to be the hegemonic power in the Middle East, I think in their own minds, that will go a long way to justifying their repressive rule in Tehran. Right. They can say we delivered to the Iranian people what all of us Iranians have wanted, you know, basically ever since uh, the Russians and the Ottoman Turks kind of limited our rule over the Arab world, going back here to the 18th century. So I think that there is an element of that. I think that there's also, and again, I think you kind of put your finger on it. It's one of these moments where I think the Iranians are seeing this combination of threat and opportunity. Right. So the Abraham Accords and the budding rapprochement between Israel and the Arab states is a real threat for the Iranians. Um, very, very dangerous. If in particular you can have Israel, which is both this military and economic powerhouse in the region, right? You wed that to the oil power of Saudi Arabia and the kind of, you know, smarts of the United Arab Emirates. That's a very formidable coalition for Iran to go up against. And I think the Iranians are quite concerned about that. And I think that, you know, they're trying to figure out, all right, how do we divide these guys? And again, this this savvier Iranian regime has recognized that just threatening these people is driving them together. Right. And so we got a reverse course on that. But I also do think that they see a real opportunity here. First, on the Israeli side, you know, the Netanyahu government has certainly not helped anyone's cause uh, by its, you know, its, its moves against its own judiciary, uh, its treatment of the Palestinians, all the rhetoric coming from these, you know, wild right wing members of the Israeli coalition, where, you know, it seems very clear if left to their own devices, you know, they'd like to annex the West Bank and just put paid to any possibility of a two-state solution of a Palestinian state, that is obviously distasteful to the Arabs. And we've seen that the Arabs no longer embrace the Palestinian cause quite to the extent that they once did, but they're still not ready to just completely jettison the Palestinians. So there's that issue that creates a wedge for the Iranians. And then on the other side, you've got a United States. And, and again, I try in the article, I think the Biden administration has been so much better certainly than Obama or Trump, 
in terms of recognizing that the Middle East is still very important to us and that there's a lot of stuff the U.S. can do without committing 160,000 troops or $800 billion, right? There's a lot the United States can and should do. I think Biden has been better about that. But nevertheless, there's a very strong sense still in the Middle East that the United States is disengaging, that we're just not nearly as interested in the events of the Middle East. That's very frightening to our allies, including the Israelis, but even more so for the, the Sunni Arab states. And so I think that the Iranians also see that as a real opportunity. The United States is distancing itself. The, our allies are frightened. And if the Iranians can present a kinder, gentler face to them, I think that they're thinking they're more likely to be able to pull them away from us hold them away from the Israelis, who again are creating problems for themselves with their behavior on the Palestinians, and hopefully push the U.S. out the door once and for all and break this potential rapprochement with the Israelis. That's what I think the Iranians are up to. Although, you know, exactly as you said, I, and I always try to use that, this, make this caveat myself, we just don't know because the Iranians are so opaque and they tend to come at things in such different ways than we would come at. So, all right, so that actually is a good segue to a question that co relates to this, you know, is normalization with Israel is an ideological threat to the self-image of Iran. But let me get at it in a, in a different way. I had our colleague Fred Kagan on here recently, and it was fun. We got into a real argument about how much Stalin was actually committed to communist ideology. Um, and... Uh, and you could tell that's what he really wanted to talk about. And it's what I really want to talk about, but we were supposed to be talking about Ukraine. And so we just kept circling back to this stuff. But I just finished reading the two volumes of the Kotkin biography that are out. So if you want to talk about, you know, Stalin's commitment to communism, we can do that instead too. Um, well, maybe we'll get to that. Uh, Cause I just, I just, I just had a good conversation with Daniel Hanan about, about how craptacular Russia is, but let's stay on this for two, just two seconds in that, you know, one of the running themes of this podcast, we've talked about it before I bring it up every foreign policy guy is that I have, I'm not talking about the, the Thucydides stuff. I'm talking about just sort of the DC inside the beltway realists, um, you know, the sort of the think tank realists of the left, of the libertarian right of, of the sort of, uh, that, that milieu. It always seems to me, you know, my, my standard joke is that a, a realist is the best definition of a realist is a ideologue who lost an argument. Right. And they just say, those damn ideologues, one, they're unreasonable. They're not taking into account reality. I'm the realist. I'm the guy, blah, blah, blah. But they have their own ideological commitments. And one of them is, is that, but one of their most fervently held ideological commitments is that ideology doesn't really drive states, that states just do what's in their self-interest. And to me, it's always been a question-begging thing because the ideology frames how people conceive of their self-interest. And so the... The stuff with Iran, it seems maybe I've been doing too much domestic politics, but I always talk about negative polarization, where in America, Republicans, most Republicans don't actually like their own party very much. They just hate the other party more. And most Democrats, like Bernie Sanders types, they don't like the Democratic Party. They just hate the Republicans more. And, and hatred is one of the, the most important tools psychologically for identity. Tell me who you hate and I'll tell you who you are is really, you know, I know Schmidt had it as tell me who your enemy is and I'll tell you who you are, but it's basically the same thing. If the mullahs conceive of themselves as put on this earth to combat great Satan and little Satan, and then everyone in the neighborhood says, eh, Great Satan's neither great nor really Satan. And the little Satan, meh, good fences make good neighbors. Let's get along. Let's make some money. Why do we need the mullahs, right? I mean, so that's my question is like, how much of an ideological threat and does the ideological threat actually matter? I mean, how, how realist do we need to be about Iran or does it really, is it important to understand their ideological motivations to understand what they might do? Yeah, I, I think this is such an important question on Iran, Jonah, and I think you have it exactly right, which is we don't know to what extent any of these folks in Tehran actually believes their own ideology. My own sense is that some of them do. Some of them believe it very fervently. Others don't necessarily, 
but it nevertheless is very important to them because of the very real material benefits that they accrue from it, whether it's wealth or power, right? That is the the ticket that they rode to those heights on, right? And they're not going to give it up. And they're very nervous if somebody is ever going to take it away from them. So the ideology does matter a great deal in determining a lot of what the Iranians do. Again, whether or not they actually believe it. Um, you know, a great example of that is apparently, you know, I, I, we have this uh, from Kareem Sajidpour, who is a phenomenal Iran expert. I always think of Kareem Sajidpour's uh, one of, you know, he's, he's the Iran expert's Iran expert. When I have a question about Iran, I call Kareem. And apparently, uh, Mohammad Khatami, the former president of Iran, uh, told Kareem that he once was talking about the possibility of rapprochement with the United States with Iran's supreme leader, Ayatollah Khamenei. And Khamenei apparently said to him, I will never give up the enmity with the United States because if I do so, I would be giving up the last vestige of Khomeini's ideology. And then there would be no justification for me to rule Iran. Right. And so, you know, you can take that any way that you want to. I think that Khamenei actually is quite ideological. He is a cleric. I think that he believes in that stuff. Um, I think that, you know, my own experience with politicians having worked in the White House is that, you know, politicians may say something the first time, the, the first eight times, because it's politically useful to them. But over the course of time, they come to believe it. Right, because you just say something enough, you start to believe it. And most of these folks want to believe it. They don't want to believe that they're lying to people. Right. So they start saying enough, they start to believe it. So for whatever reason, Khamenei, you know, may very well believe it. But you know, that to me was a great, you know, in some ways, the most important instance of whether or not Khamenei actually does believe the ideology. That ideology is going to remain a critical element of Iran's actual foreign policy because he just doesn't feel he can give it up. And so it is going to drive Iran's policies. And I think that this is one of the big problems that a lot of people have with the Iranians, um, in part because, and, and you know, I, I will say that there were moments of weakness, if I want to put it that way, for me as well, right? Because there are always more realistic, I won't call them realists, but a realistic Iranians in the Iranian regime who will look at this and say, this is crazy, right? You know, for 44 years, we have basically impoverished our country and, you know, kept it weak and isolated and created all of these problems for ourselves because of this enmity with the United States, right? We need to get rid of it. Imagine how great we could be if we weren't constantly under American sanctions, if we weren't constantly being contained by the United States. Mother, they're absolutely right. You know, Iran is 84 million people. They have a very creative population. They tend to be better educated than most of the other folks around. They tend to be more innovative. Right? Iran could be a great nation if it would give up this enmity, but they won't. Right? They just won't. And, you know, I want to take that to one further step, another element, I think, of what you're getting at, which is, you know, when we talk about uh, kind of the realist perspective, particularly about Iran and the relationship with Iran, you know, you get a lot of blaming America for the problems. And, and you know, I'm never going to say that the United States has been faultless in any of its foreign policies. We make mistakes all the time. Some of the mistakes we've made have been pretty significant. But at bottom, Right, the critical thing to understand about the U.S.-Iran relationship, something you cannot get away from, is that every single American administration since Carter, and including Carter, since the Iranian Revolution, with the sole exception of George W. Bush, has tried to start a rapprochement with the Iranians. Some went further than others. Clinton, I served Clinton, we went pretty far. Obama went even further. In every single case, it was the Iranians who shut it down, right? In every single case, you had Iranians, whether it was President Rafsanjani, President Khatami, President Rouhani, all of them wanted to have a rapprochement with the United States. In every single case, Iran's hardliners and the supreme leader shut it down. Right. And again, that's critical to understand because whether that comes from, you know, however you want to start, whether it's the power politics, the ideology, again, I think it's the ideology feeding the power politics. At the end of the day, this creates a very hard ceiling 
on what it's possible for the United States to do with Iran. And I'm always glad to explore that and see if the ceiling is moving a little bit. But you know, after 44 years, I just think that we have to recognize that they're not interested. Um, maybe that changes when Khamenei dies. I fear that it'll actually get worse. But that's a very important you know, element of reality that needs to be injected into these conversations. And again, I think oftentimes folks here who, yes, call themselves realists, don't seem to recognize that. Yeah. I mean, I think about um, people who say, you know, words don't matter or rhetoric doesn't matter. One of my favorite quotes is from uh, this literary critic, Wayne Booth, who said that rhetoric was the rhetoric's the art of probing what men believe they ought to believe. And um, which is a nice way of putting it, right? It's not, it's, it's, these are the arguments that are supposed to appeal to our conscience. They're supposed to appeal to the highest version of ourselves and all these kinds of things. And when you've been, when all of your leaders of any note have been saying the United States is a great Satan, it limits your political range of motion somewhat, right? I mean, it's, it's one thing to say so-and-so is our enemy, but you know, you make peace with enemies. That's because you don't have to make peace with friends. And diplomacy is about dealing with enemies. Enemy is a different thing. Great Satan is a theological, <laughs> you know, sort of commitment. The whole, whole idea, well, you know, great Satan's been nicer lately. It's not, it, not a persuasive argument, right? You know, like, oh, great, great, great Satan made some concessions. You know, like it, 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 just, it opens you up to all sorts of scriptural you know, responses, well, he deals in lies and trickery, because it's Satan, right. right? And so that's a political box that it seems to me the regime, how you can go back to your voters or your people and say, I know, I, great Satan, I said it a few times, yeah, but, you know, this is a really good deal, right? And so it, it, this is my point about the realists, not, if, if, all you th if you think all words are just boob bait for the masses, you can think that way, but it turns out they're not because you get locked into certain rhetorical commitments that you made. Yes, absolutely. And I, I think that you are correct that, um, you know, one of the, again, one of the interesting things to go back a little bit in history. Um, so during the 1980s, during the Iran-Iraq war, these debates first started to emerge in Iran within the, the Iranian regime over foreign policy and actually domestic policy as well. They're all mixed up together. And at that point in time, the moderate camp in Iran was led by a variety of different figures, the most important of which, though, was, believe it or not, Ali Khamenei, the current supreme leader of Iran. And all through the 1980s, he was very consistently seen as a moderate, right? And the arguments that he made were, you know, the kind of more rational, pragmatic arguments that I think, you know, any American who had been a, an Iranian leader would have made the same kinds of arguments. Uh, worth noting that he pretty consistently got shot down. He lost far more arguments than he won. But worth noting that when he becomes supreme leader, there's a very significant shift. And over the course of time, he moves far more into the hardliner camp. Right. Now, again, he's an interesting figure. He's a pretty complicated figure. It's not always perfectly one or the other. But over time, he has become more and more and more hardline. Right. And again, this doesn't seem to be something that is divorced from ideology. Right. I think that the ideology was always there. Right. But what we've also seen is that as his circumstances have changed, that ideology has played a greater and greater role in his thinking and in his pursuit of Iranian policy. And again, whether that is because over the course of time he comes to believe it more, or it simply is more instrumentally useful or necessary, as you're suggesting, we don't know. But there is no question that his behavior over time actually becomes much more consistent with Khomeini's philosophy. Right? And you know, trying to walk away from that and suggest that this is irrelevant, uh, you know, and again, you can always point to I said people like Hatami and Rouhani and Rafsanjani, who were much more realistic in a kind of Western sense. Uh, and so you can say, well, look, there are all these people. That's you know what they're trying to do. And it seems like the Iranian people would very much like to have this better relationship with the United States. Well, that's nice. It's good to know. But at the end of the day, it's not what's actually driving Iran's policy.
Okay, let's take a second to hear from our sponsor. Do you owe back taxes? Pandemic relief is over now. Along with hiring thousands of new agents and field officers, the IRS has kicked off 2024 by sending over 5 million pay-up letters to those who have unfiled tax returns or balances owed. Don't waive your rights and speak with the IRS on your own. They are not your friends. Tax Network USA, a trusted tax relief firm, has saved over $1 billion in back taxes for their client, and they can help you secure the best deal possible. Whether you owe $10,000 or $10 million, they can help you. Whether it's business or personal taxes, even if you have the means to pay or you're on a fixed income, they can help finally resolve your tax burdens once and for all. So so call 1-800-245-6000 for a private free consultation or visit tnusa.com slash remnant. That's tnusa.com slash remnant. Okay, so let's take a second to hear from our sponsor, Aura Frames. Longtime listeners know I'm a big fan of Aura Frames. I've gotten them as gifts. I've given them as gifts. I sent my daughter back to college with one so she could look at many, many, many pictures of her cat and I guess her parents as well. So if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life, Aura Frames are a beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. I can attest, it is very easy to use, very intuitive. You don't have to read a lot of documentation. And it's just like you load the app and it says, what pictures do you want in your frame? And you put them in your frame and you can change them and you can set the settings to whatever you want for how long the pictures stay there. It's pretty idiot proof. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's AuraFrames.com. A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use the promo code REMNANT at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Before, uh, before we get off of Iran, um, people will rightly scold me if I don't ask you what your take on this hostage purchase is. Uh, so let me start by saying that Siamak Namazi, who's one of the hostages, uh, is, I'd say, you know, he's more than an acquaintance of mine. Um, I haven't seen Siamak in a very long time, unfortunately, but I consider Siamak a friend, so there is that element to it. And as someone who has at time, from time to time contemplated the possibility of being uh, someone's hostage somewhere. The idea of, you know, Americans should not be held hostage. Americans should not be imprisoned in a Ving prison. Um, so I think that getting people out of prisons in horrible places like Iran, I think is hugely important. I think that it is a very important thing for the United States government to do. I, I, I mean that emphatically, right? I'm so glad that Siamak and the others are hopefully going to actually be released, right? There's, we're still in this kind of state of limbo, but it does look like that, and that would be wonderful. And I'm, I'm so thrilled for them and for their families. Um, I'm not happy, though, generally about how the United States, and, and this goes way beyond Biden, right, because so many different administrations have done this, going all the way back to Reagan, right? Let's remember that the, the, um, what, what is now known as Iran-Contra starts as an arms for hostages deal. Ronald Reagan desperately wants the American hostages released and, you know, is trying to use uh, weapon sales to Iran as a way to make it happen. So it goes all the way back. It is a bipartisan policy. Um, I think that it is deeply problematic. I think that the history, and I've written about this, um, I think it's very, and my understanding, by the way, is uh, that the Iranian Revolutionary Guard completely agrees with my statements about this in my books. I've heard this from people who have heard this from Revolutionary Guard leaders, uh, that ultimately the Iranians do this very deliberately. And, you know, they use it to make money. They use it for leverage. Uh, every time we get a bunch of hostages released, they go take new ones. Right. And so we absolutely are. We're not just providing money to an odious regime that is going to use the money for bad purposes. And again, I, 
I commend the Biden administration for at least trying to limit how Iran is going to be able to use the money. At the end of the day, it doesn't really matter because even if they use all six billion of it to do nothing but buy baby formula, that's six billion dollars worth, sorry, six billion dollars worth of baby formula that they don't have to buy with other money, right? Money that could go to terrorism or other things like that. Um, so great that they're trying. I just don't think that it's terribly meaningful. And, you know, I do think that we have to work a lot harder uh, to come up with responses that don't require us to pay ransom to the Iranian regime to get our people freed. Um, and, uh, you know, some of this is, is about a willingness to get tough with the Iranians, which I've just, I've, again, I've never seen any American administration willing to take. And, you know, again, having served some of these administrations, what I've often heard from them is, you know, the Iranians, it's actually the the opposite of the realist perspective, even though some of these people are realists, it's these people are crazy. They're a bunch of ideologues. You know, if you get into a fight with them, it's just going to be awful, right? Uh, you know, never get in a pissing match with a skunk, uh, that kind of stuff. And, you know, there's, okay, something to that. But I think that we're way too quick to just say, no, you know, the Iranians will, will be willing to, you know, cut off their noses to spite their own faces. What we've seen is the Iranians actually do respond when we get tough with them. And I think that if we were to get tougher with them around the issue of hostages, uh, we could start to turn that around. That's That would be what I'd like to see us do in the future. Okay, so um, switching, moving the map just a little bit, Iran's trying to get the Arab world to play ball with it. It feels like Turkey mm. likes the West again. And um, it's done a bunch of things recently. Well, it's Tuesday, right, John? I mean, you know. <laughs> that's right. That's right. It's it's Taco Tuesday, and so like you know, like, actually, it's 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 uh, Wednesday now. So Western Wednesday. They must they, Western Wednesday. That, there you go. Um, uh, they agreed to the Sweden stuff. I mean, I know it was a swap for planes, but they let they let Zelensky take these Azov, uh, whatever the the. the Prisoners, you know, Ukrainian soldiers back home, which really pissed off Putin. He's saying things about Ukraine joining NATO and about how he likes NATO and yada, yada, yada. And I can't remember, but there, I, I was reading about it just the other day. There, there are a whole bunch of things that are making people saying um, that Erdogan is, is coming back into the tent a little bit. And um, I'm just wondering, is that impression right or is that impression reasonable? even if it's wrong. Um, and, uh, which is always like, it's why I don't talk about the middle East too much is because <laughs> every interpretation of events has some reasonableness to it, even when it's completely wrong. <laughs> exactly. Um, so let me start with, you know, an important, uh, kind of caveat, important station identification. Uh, I am not, I don't consider myself a true Turkey expert. There are people who do nothing but Turkey. They've forgotten more about Turkey than I know. Uh, sometimes I will play a Turkey expert on podcasts, though. So, you know, glad to give you my my take on it, which is, and, and again. I mean, you're a Middle East expert, Levant. I mean, like, it's not an unreasonable question oh, no, to ask absolutely you. absolutely not. I follow Turkey, you know, all the time. Um, uh, but of course, you know, let's remember the Turks themselves try to define themselves as European, not Middle East. Right, because they have a toe in Europe. Exactly. Um, I'll put this, you know, Turkey is one of these countries uh, that we've learned over the last 15, 20 years. So much of it is about Erdogan, right? Um, yes, you know, I always think of, I'm sure you do as well, Henry Kissinger's famous line that, you know, when you're an academic, you think of the world as being governed by these big impersonal forces. And then when you actually get into policy, you realize how much personalities matter. Turkey is like, you know, Erdogan's poster child for that quote, right? If you had one of those, um, you know, uh, kitschy, like, uh, uh, you know, posters that, that bad companies put up in their meeting rooms. Accessories. Exactly, yeah. right, you know. So this, uh, Erdogan's picture would be under, would be above that quote from Kissinger, right? It's all about his personality. It's all about what he had for breakfast that day or, you know, what his, what he thinks happened in his latest election. Um, and, you know, I think that we can certainly speculate, I think it's reasonable speculation, that Erdogan has figured out that kind of taking this very heavy anti-Western 
approach that he took over the last three or four years really didn't get him very much. Right? At the end of the day, Russia isn't a good alternative for him. Um, I think that Ukraine has demonstrated that first, their weapons are pretty crappy. Um, and second, uh, they don't have a whole lot of clout out there, certainly not with Europe, which is where he wants to get to eventually um, in a whole variety of different ways. And of course, Ukraine has made that worse because he's now bogged down and a pariah. So that's not leaving him much. Um, I think he's still interested in China. But you know what everyone has figured out is that someday, 10, 20 years from now, China may be a very important Middle East player, but they're not today. Right? And it will take 10 or 20 years for that really to happen. And Erdogan needs to- If it happens. Right, exactly, if it happens. Um, and Erdogan's got stuff that he needs to get done today. Right? So I think that there's a, he, he's had, I think as best we can tell, some sense of, I've tried this alternative strategy it really hasn't gotten me very far. And a recognition that actually there are real tangible things that he wants that he can get from the West uh, if he does play nice. And so I think that's where he's headed. I think that's obviously a very positive step, but two very big butts. Right? It's the Middle East. There are lots of big butts. Um, and in this case, the two big butts are, number one, um, he can change on a dime. Right. He can change tomorrow if he wakes up and, you know, again, has a bad breakfast. He could go right back to it. It would be completely in keeping uh, with what we've seen from him over the course of time. And second, you know, what he wants may not necessarily be things that we or anybody else is ready to deliver. Um, Erdogan has, you know, an, an outsized opinion of himself and of Turkey. Uh, he has very big aspirations on all of those scores, um, and it's just not entirely clear whether the United States, the West, are going to be able to you know, give him what he wants. And that then raises the question, okay, what happens when once again he figures out, I'm not getting what I, what he, what I want? Uh, you know, does he you know, have another fit of peak and march off and say, well, you know, pox on all your houses? Entirely possible. Forgive me for this, but those are big butts. I cannot lie. Um, so uh, I was waiting for you to pick up on that. I just sat there. I like, threw that softball right out over the plate. Driving my toe into a thumbtack to keep my composure. <laughs> so you, you said you said something about how, you know, uh, Russia is not a good partner. And obviously I agree. But I, I, I get during the Cold War, Cold War was a thing. Um, the circumstances in the context of the Cold War are much more legible to me, right? Um, but, you know, Russia still has partners in the Middle East, right? Russia still has, has partners in, partners, friends in Africa. I, I guess they're BFFs with Nicaragua these days. It's not entirely clear to me. Um, one of my peeves going back a long time is in the press, You'll often see what is it the CTSO? It's the it's the it's I think that's the acronym. It's it's something like that. It's the military alliance of former Russia states. You know, Belarus, Russia, uh, a couple others, and you'll see the press say, "Well, this is this is their version of NATO." It's nothing like NATO, right? It is it's it is it is not even like it is as close to NATO as a twelve dollar Rolex um on the streets of new york is like a rolex i mean it, it looks like a rolex but you know it's really not and and all of this post ukraine post ukraine invasion stuff you see these various countries who are like i get belarus that makes sense to me right i mean like belarus is a small crappy country that it the, by your leave by putin's leave can it stick around but what do these countries actually get from Russia that makes them want to be friends with from friends with Russia? Because it really does seem like for the most part, Russia's allies, it's a losers club, right? I mean, it's real second raters. And you can tell how Xi is kind of pissed that the Ukraine invasion has proved that being like this unlimited partner of Russia is kind of like, you know, being an unlimited partner with a crackhead down the block. It just doesn't get you what you thought you were going to get, right? So 
What does Russia bring? Is it just purely commodities, oil, grain, that kind of thing? Is it selling AK-47s? I mean, what, what, is, what are the carrots that Russia brings that makes it worth hanging out with these guys? Sure. Well, I, I'll start, Jenna, by saying, again, I want to be careful here. Going You're not a Russia it. guy. I get it. Go on. Exactly. <laughs> uh, start here. As I said, you know, um, why would you want to be Russia's friend? Turn it around. Why would you want to be Russia's enemy? Mm-hmm. Right. If you're one of these countries on the borders of Russia, which is so much bigger, and you know, again, despite all their problems in Ukraine, has actual military capability, right? Why would you want to piss them off? Um, and if the Russians come to you and say, "We'd like you to join this alliance," um, unless there's somebody else out there like NATO who's going to bring you in and defend you against Russia. The smart move is to, you know, is to bandwagon, jump on board. Sure, love to be your your ally. Absolutely. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, for the most part, it doesn't look like they're called on to do anything. Mm-hmm. Um, it does give them some access to Russian weaponry, some ability to go to Moscow and say, "Hey, we'd like your help on this, that, or the other thing." As you point out, there are some commodities, some trade advantages in doing so. But again, from my perspective, I think the most important thing is that there's no alternative really for them. The Russians have kind of made them an offer they can't refuse. Yeah. So I, I, I stipulated border guys. It's a. It's just a pro con list. I get it. Why South Africa? Why is South Africa soft on Russia? So I think, you know, here we go to a a bigger issue of geopolitics in the 21st century, which is that for still to this day, um, you know, a vote, it's the point you were making before about uh, Americans and their political parties, right? It's more about who you hate, right? It's more about registering the protest vote. Um, And, you know, for South Africans, it's less about us, more about British, the Europeans, et cetera. But nonetheless, it tends to be there. And let's remember, you know, the ANC uh, had a communist ideology for, you know, most of its history and actually believed in that. Um, And, you know, some of those guys may still believe it. There still is an affinity out there. And you see that in any number of places where, again, uh, whether or not they actually still believe the ideology, in so many cases, that ideology was adopted as a protest against Western colonialism. Right. This is what we're against. Right. We're not you. We're this other thing. Um, and again, I think there are plenty of other countries who are wondering, hoping that there is more that they can get by being members of this thing. Um, you know, especially before the Ukraine war, Russia was a big country. It was a, you know, it wasn't a superpower, but it was a great power. Um, and it had some capacity. And it certainly, it had a desire and still, as you point out, has a desire to play beyond its kind of normal neighborhood, right? Russia does get involved in places like Syria and Libya, which frankly it has no business doing, but it does as best we can understand in part because Putin wants to remain a global power with global interests. And again, if you are a country far afield that doesn't like the United States, there can be some value especially if you know you're joining something that uh, you know the club has no membership dues uh, you know maybe you show up once a year to to some you know black tie ball but other than that there's nothing really no real cost to you and if you might be able to get something and doing it allows you to thumb your nose right to stick it to the man you know what exactly is the downside of doing so from their perspective now again I could make a case that there is a downside the downside is that you're basically th- you know, sticking your thumb in the eye of a real superpower and its allies, um, and you know, doing so is not going to endear you to them. Uh, you know, you'll get more, uh, you, know, you catch more flies with honey than with vinegar. Um, but, you know, some of these countries may also be thinking, look, at some point we're going to sell that, right? So at some point, the West is going to, you know, come to us and say, hey, we'd really like you to cut these ties with Russia. And we'll be able to say, OK, what's it worth to you? You know, here's what we get with the Russians, you know, double that and we'll be glad to come your way. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in business into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. 
Visit gcu.edu. There are certain questions I ask that are basically like if I just met you and I was sitting next to you on a plane and I was just these curiosity questions, right? So like in your days at these various three-letter agencies, I am sure that you ran into more than a few Russian officials at one point or another. And you certainly talked to people who talked to Russian officials. And so you remember how earlier when we were talking about how rhetoric is the tool of probing what men ought to believe, right? Like, um, I know Russia has all sorts of rhetoric. And I bet you, if you were a career diplomat, you would run into Dutch diplomats, Swedish diplomats, French diplomats, who, or, or national security people who would be really idealistic about some things, right? That would be doing things for grand, historic human, uh, you know, human rights issues and not for cold realpolitik and, you know, how many, how many barrels of oil will this get us and all that kind of stuff. And you might meet people who think that way too. But like, A, in your experience, are there a lot of Russians who actually believe any of their idealistic stuff? I mean, in a, in a sincere way, like, you know, off the record conversation where you actually talk about this stuff and they actually do have this vision of Russia being a helper to the world and doing good things in the world. Um, and that they sincerely believe it. And it's not just a talking point and B what the hell are they saying are the good things? Like, like what, what specific, what are their examples of them being a force for good in the world? I'm, I'm it's a sincere question. Yeah, these are great questions. At least start with the, the first part of it, John, and say that, you know, in my experience, no, I've never encountered a Russian diplomat who I thought truly believed in, you know, the, the various points that they were making. I will say that I have found that they, again, in my experience, they tend to be superb at keeping a completely straight face, right? And never coming out of character. I mean, you know, uh, some of my much more interesting interactions on those lines were with Europeans. Um, and again, let's, let's, you know, yes, there absolutely are very idealistic, not just European diplomats, but European countries, right? Scandinavia is as every bit as idealistic as they, as they come across. Yeah. Or even Canada. I mean, Canada can say with a straight face that they want to be a moral superpower. Yep, exactly. Bless your hearts, but like they believe it and that's a good, you know, okay. I, agree. Fine. I agree. absolutely agree. Um, I've, you know, met, any number of other European diplomats, particularly the French, who you don't have to push them too hard before they come off of it. And it becomes very clear that they don't believe any of that. And they're actually quite glad to kind of really stick it to you and tell you <laughs> that, no, we don't really believe this, um, but we're going to say it because we know that it makes it impossible for you. Right. Um, so as a, I've never felt from any of these folks from on the Russia side that they actually believed any of it. They're very good about uh, you know, keeping a straight face and just endlessly kind of sticking with the script. What do they promise? I mean, that's, you know, this is a, a great one. And again, remember I work in the Middle East, so that's mostly what kind of the stuff that I hear and see. And so much of what they're offering is almost literally the opposite of what the United States is pitching, right? I'm not going to say promise, pitching, right? So whatever the U.S. pitch is, the Russians take the opposite, right? And they can more or less say, uh, you know, to the states of the region, I'll start there before we get to the United States, they'll say to the states of the region, you know, you need uh, weapons, we've got weapons. And we will sell you weapons without the constraints that the Americans put on the weapons. You can do with them whatever the hell you want to. And they will try to make the pitch that, hey, our weapons are every bit as good as the Americans are. You know, don't worry about that. And by the way, they're also cheaper, right? And you need kickbacks? <laughs> you know, just tell us what bank account to send the money to, right? So there's that piece of it. Um, they are willing to do some on the economic front. They don't have the resources that we do. But as you point out, they've become more creative about, in particular, using oil to try to, you know, help them. Now in the Middle East, that's more problematic because most of the countries I work on don't need more oil, right? What's been interesting recently has been how they've been part of this OPEC plus group 
And yeah, this is a tough one for them because the truth is that the Russians would really like to just jack the price up as high as they possibly can. That's especially been true since Ukraine, but it was true even before that. And you've had very, I mean, you had a knockdown, drag out fight between the Saudis and the Russians in 2020, where, you know, Mohammed bin Salman of Saudi Arabia took on Putin in a price war and it was brutal and the Saudis won, right? That was, you know, that was MBS's great victory was breaking the Russians on the price of oil. Um, so, you know, that that lends, that's not, not cooperation, but since then, and even around it to a certain extent, the Russians have been able to kind of dangle that out there as cooperation on oil pricing as something that's worthwhile to them. And then, of course, on the political front, you know, they also can offer political support, diplomatic support, their UN Security Council vote, which you know, all of which can be useful to these different groups. And from the Russian perspective, it's basically for sale, right? Um, you know, as long as you don't cross a, you know, a, a red line in terms of a Russian vital interest, which most of these states never will, um, you know, whatever you need, the Russians are glad to support you, right? Be our friend. We'll, we'll pick up your cause, whatever it is, because we don't really care. With regard to the United States, I mean, that's the, you know, the more interesting one where, you know, what you often hear from the Russians is this more idealistic talk, right? Um, coupled with, uh, you know, the usual scolding of the United States, right? So, you know, and, and look, they've got good, smart arguments to make. You Americans are the problem, right? You're the aggressors. Look at all of the wars that you have waged over the last 20 or 30 years. And they will also point to specific moments in time when the U.S. did things that pissed off lots of countries around the world, right? And, you know, for them, it'll go back. They'll go back to the Gulf War, right? Most Americans aren't even aware of this. We don't even think about it. But at that moment in time, Gorbachev, and remember, Gorbachev was incredibly cooperative with the United States. Um, he was an incredible partner for President Bush, Bush 41, during the Gulf War. But during the Gulf War, remember, the, the UN resolutions allowed us to use force to get the Iraqi army out of Kuwait, period, full stop. There was nothing about bombing Iraq's military industries, destroying its infrastructure, wiping out the Iraqi military, let alone overthrowing the government of Saddam Hussein, right? All of which the United States is pursuing most, well, somewhat informally, but, you know, very much formally, right? And the Russians, you know, we now have the transcripts. The Russians are protesting all throughout that. That becomes a talking point now. You know, you Americans in the Gulf War, the UN told you you could use force to get the Iraqis out of Kuwait. You went way beyond it. You know, 2011 in Libya, uh, you know, the, you, you got us to vote in favor of a UN resolution that was in favor of using force to protect the city of Benghazi. And instead, you turned it around and used it to remove the Qaddafi regime. Right. So they've got all of these talking points about American aggressiveness, American disregard for international law, American disregard for the United Nations. Right. And their argument to us is basically you're the aggressors in the world. And what we're trying to do is to stand up for uh, you know, <laughs> international law international you know, constraints on aggression, right? We're the ones who are trying to stop military aggression in the world. So, you know, those, are, especially before Ukraine, those were the points that they tried to make. Now, again, let's remember that the Russians, uh, this, these were complete lies on the Russian point too, right? They had done all kinds of things of their own in places like Chechnya and Georgia and Crimea, right? So this is complete nonsense. But again, the Russians were great at making these arguments and making them absolutely with a straight face. That, that was all great and interesting, which is why I didn't stop you. But um, <laughs> what, what I'm sort of getting at about the idealistic place, so like you talk to a Swede and they will take positions about climate change that are, I would say, arguably against their own national economic interest or about human rights that create more problem headaches for them than anything, but they want to stand for these sort of noble ideals and, and whatnot. Um, I've been on a Russia history kick lately, and you know one of the themes that comes up all the time is that the Rus the story the Russians tell about themselves is that they are saviors of civilization, that they are 
um, a salvific people who come to the aid of others. And I keep, it's like, I keep checking to see if someone tore out a page when I'm reading these things, because they never give really good examples of them ever doing that kind of thing. But it's the thing that they tell themselves about themselves. And, and so like, I, it's very easy for me to imagine what an idealistic Canadian diplomat or an idealistic Dutch or Swedish diplomat might say. I can even understand, even if they're sort of talking out of both sides of their mouth, what a French one would say, because the French do have, that's also the sort of the French self-conception. But I can think of examples where that might be true with the French, right? Some kind of blew up on us, like when Napoleon unified Germany, but that's a different conversation. I just don't know what Russian idealism means beyond talking points, right? I mean, like, what causes about the world do they care about? I mean, it's, it's I don't think it's endangered species or climate change or or human rights or any of that kind of stuff. It's a it, it's just becoming more and more clear to me is that the, the the Russian and I'm not talking about individual Russians, obviously, right? We're speaking in gross generalizations, but at the level of self conception at a national level, Russia really hasn't entered a post, you know a post enlightenment phase in many ways, and and so. A lot of the things they say about themselves are celebrating imperialism and, 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 and strongman rule as if everybody thinks those things are awesome and the rest of us are looking at them going, you know, that stuff's bad, right? And anyway, so like that's what I'm getting at. I just don't, I'm honestly curious when they talk about how great Russia is for the world, other than saying they stood in the way of the United States, I just don't know what the examples are. Right. Well, again, if you go back to the points I was making is they're pretty limited, Jonah, right? I mean, they are things like we actually believe in international law. You don't. Right. And we are standing up for the little guy. Right. You know, you're the one going up, going around, beating up these little countries. We're the ones who are standing up for them. Now, again, they're completely overlooking the little countries that they're beating up. Right. That doesn't enter into it. But they can point out other you know, smaller states that have fought with the United States or with our allies, and they'll point to those. And so, yes, they will be glad to, to say we're sticking up for the little guy. And, you know, I maybe I'm imagining this, but I think it's there. There, There's a little bit of kind of, you know, post-Soviet overtones of, you know, during because they during the Cold War, they like to be able to say, you know, we're on the side of the people. Right. The Americans are backing these corrupt elites who are exploiting their people. Right. They played right into all the Marxist rhetoric. They loved that stuff. Again, it's complete BS, but they love to be able to say it. Right. And there's a there's a little bit of that still in the sense of, you know, we're the ones sticking up for the little guys around the world and their people. And you Americans are, uh, you know, the ones who are wedded to these corrupt elites who are oppressing them. Again, it's complete nonsense. As you know, go back to what I said, you know, what they're clearly saying to so many of these governments in private is, you know, do whatever the hell you want to your own people. We don't care. Right. The Americans are the ones who have problems with, with human rights and, you know, are interested in democracy. We don't have those same hangups, but publicly, and again, they don't couch it necessarily in the rhetoric of democracy, but they certainly will kind of, as I said, almost harken back to this kind of class thing, where again, we're the ones sticking up for the little guys. In the few seconds we got left since we're on Russia, um, I'll say it for you, you're not a Ukraine guy either. <laughs> uh, but... Um, um, it seems to me, given how much of the middle, how Russian-made weapons are just, you know, the Middle East is awash with Russian-made weapons. It's also awash with American-made weapons, right? But Israel's record using American-made weapons is pretty impressive. Ukraine's record of using Russian weapons, not so great. That's why they're switching to American-made weapons, and that's working out for them. And Russia's, you know pretty disastrous results so far, which are not all just because they had bad weapons or anything, but it, it does call into doubt everything from the weapons to doctrine to, to everything else. And in particular, because I know we talked about this the last time you were on here about, you know, because drones are changing the way the Middle East does things too. I'm just wondering if you're, a, if you're an Egyptian military 
official, if you're a um, Iranian military official, you're looking at what's going on in Ukraine. What what are you doing to your budget over the next five to ten years in response to what you're seeing on the ground in Ukraine? Yeah, interesting question. Um, let me talk about the Arabs and separately talk about the Iranians. Um, you know, with the Arabs, they obviously are looking at Ukraine. It's not clear that Ukraine offers any of them clear lessons about almost anything. Um, because, you know, the lesson that a lot of people are taking away from Ukraine is you need, you still need big World War II style conventional armies. Right? Um, the Arabs aren't good at big World War II conventional style armies, right? I've written multiple books about this and any number of articles. Um, and they've more or less figured that out, right? And the really smart ones are asking the questions of, you know, okay, are there other ways of doing this? As we talked about the last time I was on, you know, the Iranians even get that. And the Iranians are better than the Arabs by and large, but they even get the fact that they're not going to be able to replicate, you know, the Israeli defense forces, let alone the Wehrmacht, in terms of that kind of warfare. And so they are looking for these new niche capabilities generated by the technology, like drones and ballistic missiles and cyber and all that kind of stuff. Right? For the Arabs, the question ultimately comes back to these these bigger sets of questions of, you know, how much are we going to provide for our own defense? Right, because if we really need to provide for our own defense, then either one of two things happens: one, we have to really transform our society, right? Because it's ultimately these political, economic, and cultural issues, right? These deep down stuff that are the impediments to their military effectiveness, right? This is what my last book was all about. And again, they get that. The U.S. government gets that, but it, you know, how do you change that? You have to be like the United Arab Emirates, where their leader, Mohammed bin Zayed, he is trying to bring about a multi-generational cultural change, right? And he's very open about this, right? And they are restructuring every aspect of their education, but it's a massive effort. And you know, the UAE, you know, I hate to say this, but it's not a real country. Right. It's not like any other country. Right. It's got a teeny tiny little population and more money than God. Right. And, a, and a, a brilliant leader. Right. Who has complete control, who can do this. That's just not an option for most countries. So you either do complete transformation there or you actually have to go in a different direction, which is you have to buy weapons and fight wars in a very, very simple way that their armies can actually handle, right? And this is actually the obverse of what you're talking about. So, um, you know, as you point out, most of the world has figured out that Western weaponry, especially American weaponry, is a lot better than Russian weaponry. That doesn't work for the Arabs, right? I mean, you know, uh, one of my favorite stories about the Arabs was that by about the 1990s, the Egyptians had stopped having training between their F-16 squadrons and the squadrons that were equipped with old Soviet MiG-21s, because the MiG-21s would win. Is the, the guy, the MiG-21 was a very simple aircraft, and the pilots understood how to fly it. The F-16 was so sophisticated, their pilots couldn't do anything with it. Most of them didn't even know how to turn on the radar in the F-16. Right. So if you're thinking about, OK, well, we got to defend ourselves and we're not willing to do societal transformation, then it becomes a matter of, OK, dumbing things down, buying simpler weapons, having much more simple military operations that aren't going to be effective in most circumstances. But, you know, maybe like in the 1973 October War, Yom Kippur War, right, where they structure things in such a way that for four days they can beat the Israelis. Right. And the moment those four days are done, they're done too. And the Israelis immediately start to win. But for those four days, they structure things so that they can get a little bit of a win from them, right? So that's where the Arabs are right now. And that's the bigger set of questions that they're asking. Ukraine, you know, if anything, just kind of reinforces those points that, look, we're not up to this kind of warfare. So either we got to find other countries that are going to fight for us. And if that's not the Americans, you know, who's it going to be? And that's one of the reasons why they are looking at the Israelis. It's one of the reasons why the Abraham Accords works for them, because they know the Israelis can fight that way. And if somebody needs to fight the Iranians that way, better to be the Israelis than them. 
On the Iranian side, as I started to point out before, they're taking this all in a very different direction. Again, I think that they look at the Ukraine war and they say, we're not going to replicate that. And by the way, we don't want to, right? Big, you know, tank brigades, minefields, right? You know, massive artillery uh, operations. This is not the way that Iran wants to do things. And first of all, Iran has learned that they can, you know, make tremendous gains out of pure subversion. Right? What they've also learned in the last five or ten years is that they can employ many of these new military technologies that are definitely there in Ukraine, but aren't being featured as much. Again, ballistic missiles, drones, cyber, etc. They can use that for coercion, right? And they've done that very successfully, coercing the Saudis coercing the Emiratis, uh, right, and threatening everybody else in the region, more or less saying, look at what we did to the Saudis and the Emiratis. We can do that to you too, right? You don't want us to do it. That's, you know, to go back to the first part of our conversation, that has been a very important element of the stick that they now hold over all of these countries. It's why now suddenly offering the carrot too is so smart on their behalf and why I'm nervous that it's going to actually, you know, create real problems for us because these countries are very scared of the Iranian stick. And if all of a sudden the Iranians are willing to offer a carrot in a way that they never really have in the past, a lot of these countries might look at that and say, well, if the Americans aren't going to defend us and the Iranians will beat us up if we don't do what they want and the Americans aren't going to protect us against that. And all of a sudden now they're offering us carrots too. Well, you know, that makes it a lot more attractive for them. All right, Kent Pollack. As always, it's a pleasure to have you on. Um, I hope you'll come back. Always my pleasure. Glad to come back. And uh, um, and we'll put the foreign policy piece and all the other stuff in the show notes. And uh, thank you again. Okay, so Ken has left the studio, and um, I hope people can forgive the uh, that we're leaning into our grand tradition here of counter programming when there's big news. So there was zero mention of Trump or indictments or any of that kind of stuff, um, which was kind of nice. And um, as I, I gather, there are people who are interested in the topic of uh, the tr latest Trump indictments, and uh, the dispatch is nothing if not responsive to the uh, legitimate news interests of our members. And so we did do a, a dispatch live uh, recording last night that I was on for a little bit. Um, and if you remember, you could get that. Uh, and of course, uh, advisory opinions our niche legal podcast did a, uh, an emergency episode all about the Georgia indictments, which I thought was, um, I'm not quite done with it. I was listening to it this morning. Um, but so far it's really good. Other than that, I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. <laughs>